a graduate of the Carnegie Institute of Technology. This man majored in chemistry early on in his career, but then abandoned science and obtained a law degree from Yale. Today, he's a partner in a major Washington law firm and practices international environmental law. He also has a weekly column on the online newspaper military.com. Great read, by the way, folks. <laughs> and on top of that, he's one of the best-selling novelists today with top sellers like Spy Dance, Dark Ambition, Conspiracy, and Enemy of My Enemy. Hi, this is Greg Grasso with the Marshall Public Library Radio Hour. And if you haven't figured it out, I'm talking with Alan Topol, one of the leading international best-selling authors today. How's it going, Alan? It's going great. I'm so happy to be talking to you, Greg. It's really a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thank you, sir. Um, I, uh, I want to jump in. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, because uh, I interviewed uh, David Baldacci and Jeffrey Deaver and a number of others, um, uh, Barry, Steve Barry, um, you turned lawyer. And you've gone rogue writing writing novels now. <laughs> so my question to you, like it was for Deaver and Baldacci, what got you into writing? Um, Why did you give up such a uh, uh, a great career in law? Well, actually, um, I didn't give it up. I've always been interested in writing my whole life, from the time I began with a high school newspaper, where I was sports editor when I was in college. I wrote a column on political affairs. When I started as a lawyer, I became, uh, I was also writing nonfiction op-ed pieces. And then one day I was in a gas line during the oil embargo of 1973 at 4 a.m. waiting to fill up my car, freezing. And I said to myself, wait a minute, this shouldn't be happening in America. And I'm going to write an op-ed piece about it. And then I thought, well, if I can write a novel, I have a better chance of reaching more people but it has to be an action novel, and my message has to be based, has to be put into the novel. And so I wrote a novel, and that was my first one called The Fourth of July War. Followed it with another one, never gave up my law practice, stopped writing novels for about 15 years because we had to educate um, some children. When the children were educated, I went back to novel writing with a vengeance, and then uh, published novels six through eight. The last one was the eighth novel. And at this point, I'm happily tapering out of the law practice. So I've kind of been having two careers, which has actually worked uh, pretty well for me, Greg, because I you know, enjoy doing both of them. It sounds like you do. Um, you're in your uh, 50s, right? Well, I'm a few years older than that. Are you but, really? Uh, yes, 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 <laughs> I am. But, uh, but uh, you know, but that, that, that's okay. Age is relative. Hey, if I'm at the point where I brought out two novels this year, um, The China Gambit and The Spanish Revenge, and my next one's coming out next September, the third in this trilogy, The Russian Endgame, and that one's written, and I'm working on the one after that. So, you know, age is... Uh, is a kind of a thing where you don't pay attention to the numbers as long as you can have a productive output. If you're a writer, I read that Herman Wolk published a novel at 96 years old yeah. last week. So, yeah. uh, you know, we learn when we go along, and hopefully we get better as we uh, as we do it, you know. Yeah. Well, what, now, what are you working on? What, what did I just hear? You've got one. Well, what, yeah, what you just heard is my yeah. first six novels, yeah. We're all entirely standalone and, and totally different characters. Each one 
and a separate geopolitical issue as a background, but they were page-turning thrillers. Right. And I wrote novel seven, The China Gambit, and the funny thing happened to me. I really liked the characters. I liked Craig Page. I liked Elizabeth Crowder. I even liked my, my villain, a Chinese General Chu. Right. And I decided I want to keep these characters and put them into two more books and turn it into a trilogy. So the book, which just came out in September, which is the one that's probably sitting on your desk, is called The China, the Spanish Revenge, which is um, the second in the trilogy. The China Gambit came first, and although I was very careful to make it a standalone, so if somebody picked up Spanish Revenge, hadn't read China Gambit, they'd be perfectly okay. But in answer to your question, the third book in the trilogy, The Russian Endgame, with these same characters, uh, will be coming out next September, and the prologue for that is set forth at the end of The Spanish Revenge. Yeah. Well, yeah, now I get it. (laughs) Now I get it. And I love the fact that it it really is a standalone novel, I think. Um, I love the character Craig Page. Um, interesting to me. How did you develop him? Because, well, as you know, uh, you know you're one of these uh, elite uh, few that write uh, really good thriller and suspense novels, and I'm sure you do a lot of um, uh, research. Uh, you live in Washington D.C. Um, I know that David Baldacci's got an office adjacent to Homeland Security. He uh, knows folks in the business, let's call it business. So uh, where do you get your stuff? Well, you're exactly right. Uh, Being in Washington, it's great for working novels, for writing novels about international intrigue and suspense, because you get to know people and you get into the sense, into their heads and what they're doing. But the other thing I do a lot of is travel, because all of my novels are strong on international locales, and that, in a way, distinguishes uh, my books. They're the myriad of international locales. In the Spanish Revenge, for example, much of it takes place in southern Spain, some in Morocco, some in France, some in Italy, a little bit in China. And I go to those places, and when I'm there... I talk to people, I take notes, I research the places. But the other thing I do is I research a geopolitical issue, call it a background issue, because Mm -hmm. in my thrillers, I want the reader not just to turn pages and hopefully enjoy the book, I want them to come away having learned something. And so I research that issue, and I find myself doing the Spanish Revenge Going back to the history uh, involving Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, and prior to that, um, Islamic control over Spain. And I love to work in history and current developments, and that takes um, a lot of research. But but I think it's uh, it gives the reader some additional, uh, you know, something additional when they're finished. Yeah, and um, uh, going back to. Um Spain and its conflict uh, with the Muslims um, uh, or the Muslim influence, I should say. Um, I remember, I remember the story uh, with Spain and uh, England, where uh, England defeated the Spanish Armada, um, and 
what's interesting to me is, you know, I look back in history and I see Spain at that time um, very greedy and, and driven by religious belief. Um, they uh, seemed to wanted to conquer the world and bring Christianity to the world, um, which is not really parallel to what's going on today. But I want to get into today's threat. You know, you, the Spanish Revenge kind of sets the tone, and I've been following this um, – uh, threat, um, uh, the radical threat of, of all kinds of groups for a few years now. So what is it what, – what's going on today, Alan? What do you see going on today? Uh, we've got the conflict um, uh, in, the, uh, in the Gaza Strip. We've got uh, uh, Israel just, you know, pounded for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, where do you see where do you see this going? Uh, because it, quite frankly, scares the hell out of a lot of people. Well, I think it does. Um, where I see it going, and, and this is kind of what I wanted to do um, in the, a little bit in the Spanish Revenge. Yeah, um, I see it going the following way: Islam, as a religion, has had some incredible ups and downs. It had a high point in southern Spain from the eighth to the fifteenth century. Mm-hmm. Um, great period of learning, of education, of of arts, of all sorts of things. And then um, the Christians, of course, came in with Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, drove out the Muslims, set up their Christian empire. Um, Islam also had a good day with Saladin uh, being able to defend Jerusalem, and finally with the Ottoman Empire, which of course ended in the First World War. But beginning from the time of the First World War, Islam and Islamic nations were on the decline, and uh, the countries that had large Islamic populations were, for the most part, ruled by Western colonial powers, and uh, later on, autocrats were put in place by those Western powers. Mm -hmm. Now what we're seeing, and this is what you alluded to, is the scary part is it started with Iran when the um, Islamists basically hijacked uh, the revolution that overthrew the Shah and set up an Islamic empire. And I see that happening um, in northern Africa in a number of places, likely in Tunisia and Libya. Um, certainly it's happening in, in Egypt, um, happening with Hamas. And so I see Islam on the move in those places. Now, the other place I see Islam on the move, which is the scary part that my book deals with, is in Western Europe, um, because um, the, there has been a, an influx of um, Islamic people from northern Africa, from the former colonies into Western Europe. Now we have large um, Muslim enclaves within the largest European cities, and the demographics and Uh, rate of uh, having children is such that they will be a majority in a number of major European cities by the end of the next decade. So the face of Western Europe um, is being changed by um, the growth of Islam, and that is, uh, for the Europeans, 
uh, a major, major bitter pill to swallow and probably their most important problem right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Christianity is, is, uh, is being tempered, um, is, uh, to me, <laughs> to me, it's almost like, all right, you know, we're <laughs> okay. Let's, let's step back a little bit. What the heck is driving all this? The, the way I see it, it's religion. These, the Muslim um, faith has been around since the first day of time. Um, so many people, uh, so many countries, uh, Britain, France, United States, whatever, we, we've, we've tried to change that culture. It seems to me that you, it ain't it ain't going to happen, man. So is is this something that that is just we're just going through? Um, is it a cyclical thing? Um, because I know that you know uh, we've tried um, over the past centuries. Christianity's uh, uh, has has tried to influence many many uh, different countries. Um, so why what's driving it is is it the religious faith is it is it that, that this faith is 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 uh, you know set in stone we're never going to be able to change the mindset of these people the the, the radicals the radicals right right no i think that we are never going to change the mindset of the radicals that is absolutely true and we also have to recognize that um, this religion and the faith is, I think you indicated, driving it is um, creating um, much more. It's being converted into political power, um, and therein lies the problem. And one of the things that I allude to in my book, The, the, the China Gambit, yes. and also in The Spanish Revenge, which is truly frightening the way I see it, there are three primary power blocks in the world. There's the West, led by the United States. There's China. And the third is the Islamic nations. Now, what about the possibility, which I put into my novel, of the Chinese teaming up with the Islamic nations? And that is something that I can see happening. For example, in Iran, it's already happening where the Chinese have entered into a significant deal with the Iranians for oil and natural gas, and in return, uh, they have worked to block some of the severe sanctions we've tried to impose through the UN. So in a certain sense, um, what is even more troublesome than um, the rise of Islam for the West is the fact that in some situations, there could start to be alliances with China. Pakistan and China is another natural alliance. There are all sorts of reasons why Pakistan, one of the largest Islamic countries in the world, would unite with China. I mean, opposition to India and all sorts of other reasons, but the fact of the matter is it's happening. And and history is change, and nothing lasts forever, just as the Muslims thought they would control southern Spain forever, or all of Spain, uh, their period uh, ended. And uh, unfortunately, it's hard to see where the 
transitions are coming now, but there are significant movements underway that are very troublesome as we look ahead. Alan, do you think do you think the emerging young population uh, gets it? Do you think they understand? I mean, you and I. Uh, we grew up through the 60s and 70s, you know, the Cold War, uh, um, all the drills in school in the 50s and 60s uh, with nuclear threat. Um, we had the standoff with Kennedy and Khrushchev. Um, we have, you know, I mean, it just, uh, how do you, you know, how do you, how do we get, how do we all play together? <laughs> I, I, I just don't see it happening. Um I don't either, because there are some people who don't want to play except on their own terms, and that, unfortunately, makes it very, very difficult for the people who want to do it, who want to play jointly. I mean, you know, we like to assume, I mean, one of our failings in the United States, it's almost a naivete. We like to think that everybody sees the world exactly the same way that we do, and the fact of the matter is some people don't, and this is leads us into into major problems. I mean, mm-hmm. really, without getting into how, whether it was right, it wasn't right to get into Iraq. I mean, obviously, Saddam Hussein was awful. He's gone. That's wonderful. But the fact of the matter is the Iraqis are not now our friends. They should be grateful to us. We have put the Shiites into power when they were second-class citizens under the Sunnis. We are getting absolutely no gratitude for all the dollars and the human life that we we spent in that exercise because they're viewing the world through a different set of glasses than we are, unfortunately. So where does the United States take a stance? Do we continue our march to spread democracy throughout the world? Um, do we back off? Do we ally uh, with other nations? Um, you know, a, a lot of our uh, military footprints uh, on the ground have been uh, – uh, well, let me put it this way. Every, every major conflict the United States has been in, we've, we've still had boots on the ground. Uh, we, still, we still have presence in Japan, Korea, uh, Germany, you know um, – uh, I just, you know, uh, are we spreading ourselves too thin? Um, uh, you know, getting back to this younger population, um, my kids, you know, they're in their 20s and 30s, and they just don't see it the way I see it, um, which scares me a little bit because uh, um, this threat is here. So. I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right that the threat is here that the threat isn't going away. And to some extent, um, when you said with American youth, is um, there there's a relatively small Islamic population in the United States relative to Europe, for sure. example. So we don't see um, those communities. We don't see that kind of threat the way the Europeans do. And so in a certain sense... We're in a different situation. Now, you alluded a minute ago to the idea we are trying to spread democracy throughout the world, and that's true. But unfortunately, what happens in a lot of countries, particularly in the Middle East, is that, uh, fine, we have democracy, we help depose the autocrat, but what happens is that the Islamists are better organized, 
through intimidation and otherwise, they manage to get control of the government through the elective process, and then there are no other free elections. I mean, and so yeah. <laughs> in a certain sense, the democratic process is wonderful, but it's also a great way um, for a powerful organized group to seize control of the country. And I think we have to begin to recognize to recognize that. And they're also very patient, Alan. Um, <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, think about it. Um, these people, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. They're very patient. I mean, they've, they've gone through um, thousands of years of, of this kind of conflict, and, and, and they, just, they just stay on task, um, which is even more scarier. You know, right. no, nothing scares them, Alan. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah, and, and therein lies the problem. Now, now yeah. said for us is how does the United States utilize its resources? And uh, right now um, there is a large concern with the growth of military power in China. Yep. The Chinese have almost as many fighter jets as we do. They're catching up in naval vessels. They've launched... They, they put their first aircraft carrier out, their first stealth fighter, and the administration is working on what they call a pivot toward Asia, that we should commit more of our resources to trying to encircle China. Well, if that's true, then that means less resources in the Middle East. And I think we're struggling, particularly in a time of difficult defense budgets, of how do we... Uh, defend our interests throughout the world, particularly when we're now wanting to turn our eye toward Asia and away from the Middle East to some extent. Yeah. Well, I, I, can't, I can't see, you know, maybe I'm naive, but uh, today uh, I can't see a conflict with China and the United States. I mean, I, I just... I mean, maybe down the road, but uh, but today um, I just don't see it. Um, China's in trouble economically. You know, they've grown; they, they grew way too fast, and now they're feeling it. Um, is it is it all about resources? Is, is everything about resources? You know, recently I've been I've been seeing some spots on the news um, and some commercials that in five years the United States is going to be. Uh, um, uh, the largest producer of oil. You know, we're not going to need uh, as much oil from uh, you know, Chile or uh, you know Saudi or whatever. Um, are, are we kind of are we kind of planting our feet in the ground here and setting the tone for what's coming up? <laughs> well, the natural resource thing is good, but for us because it is shifting with technology, we're finding new ways to pull oil and natural gas out of the ground, yeah. uh, which is good. But um, uh, with China, natural resources is only one source of conflict. Um, the other source of conflict is that we have treaty obligations to defend uh, Japan and Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, the Chinese regard as a, as a province of theirs, a breakaway province, not an independent nation. And with Japan... The enmity from the Second World War is far from forgotten. It is very, very vivid in China. Mm. And if you talk to Chinese people about the Japanese, you get that reaction. Now, we have treaty obligations to Japan as well. And 
the Chinese have just installed a new president with closer ties to the military. I mean, I'm not saying that a war with China is inevitable, but what I am saying is that there are some potential flashpoints, and we had better be careful as both sides get armed to the teeth that we're not drawn into a situation where treaty commitments uh, make us come forward. That's that, that, I guess, is what my point is. Right. Well, that's, uh, I don't know. That's why we need heroes like Craig Page, I guess. You know? Oh, absolutely. And and by the way, you had asked me earlier, you got sidetracked about Craig Page, my hero of these yeah. two novels, of putting them together. Where I, I liked him because Craig Page, I wanted Craig Page to be somebody. He ended up, he had been in the CIA. He had been a very successful agent, but he ended up in a clash with the bureaucracy, and people insisted on doing it their way, doing it by the by the numbers, and he just couldn't stand that. He was too much of a freewheeling individual. When he saw a way to save lives, he did it and took it off on his own, and that caused him to get thrown out of the agency. So he's a bit of a free spirit, but a strong, strong patriot and that's terribly important it's his love of country that drives him and an in a unwillingness to tolerate the bureaucracy which i lived in washington a long time i hate the bureaucracy as well <laughs> so i could write myself into the craig page character <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it oh man well alan give me um uh you know we talked a little bit about the spanish revenge um Talked a little bit about Craig Page and what's going on in the world today. So let's let's break away for a minute. Um, tell me what you like to do. Um, you know what what uh, who's Alan Topol all about? Well, I love I love traveling, um, and so it sort of ties in to my writing. I love traveling. I like going to different places, um, different foods. I'm interested. in doing different wines, do you, and I want to work those things into my novels. Too. Do you cook? Uh, yep, I like to cook. There you go. I like to, yeah, I've got, I've got wine down in the basement, Love but it. I like to travel and go to different places, see different places, and kind of uh, learn about different things and different, mm-hmm. different kind of cultures, so I'm doing a lot of that. Uh, most of my reading is kind of uh, uh, related in some ways uh, to what I'm writing about. I mean, it's a lot of reading about Islam, a lot of reading about China, but so as I go on and do a book, it becomes a kind of um, exploratory, uh, exploratory uh, thing as, as well. Um, I walk about uh, three miles a day. Mm. You know, walking's great, not just great exercise, but mm. if you're a writer, there's no better way I've found, at least for me, it sort of clears the brain and ideas pop into your head. And so Maybe if I get up from my desk and I've been thinking about, uh, what am I going to do about this character? How am I going to move him mm. into the next phase of the novel? Mm. And, and maybe I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it. And then I go off and I walk for three miles. And while I'm walking, um, almost inevitably it pops into my head, oh, here's what I want to do with him. So it, um, it's, you know, walking's great. Yeah, that. it's called the, it's part of the creative process, actually. I'm an art director by trade, and um, when I'm blocked with a, you know, a corporate identity problem or a communication problem, uh, I go play golf or something, and then uh, uh, it kind of pops in, like you said, and you're able to 
uh, massage it and nurture it and uh, allow that uh, allow that creativity to flow. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it is cool, and you don't know where it where it comes from. So I'm sure you find this the same way in the arts. People say to you, "Well, where'd you get that idea from, Greg?" Yeah, and you don't know. It just no, pops into your head, and yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that's what keeps us going. Uh, the ideas that pop into our heads. Yeah. Well, I like the I like the way you write, Alan. Um, I. I I'm stupid when it comes to writing. I, my, my comprehension level is not that great. I, I, I can't put together anything by reading, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what I like about your writing style is you build these little tiny pictures um, like David Baldacci does. You know, he's a, um, he's a good writer also. But you, you've, you've got a, a really uh, uh, great ability, I think, is to create these little snapshots the language that you use, um, the way you write is, is uh, you know, the way most people think and talk, which, which helps, I think. Uh, so I like the way you put your books together, and I like the way you craft a character and uh, bring them into the next scene, let's say. Um, uh, and I look at novels, I look at books uh, like a movie. Um, you know, I, I, if, if the continuity isn't there, I get bored with it. Um, but your um, your ability, well, not your ability, but your due diligence, I guess, when you research, the fact that you actually talk to people, you know, you travel and you actually talk to people, so you get a better sense of of uh, uh, that nationality or or that group of uh, folks that you're writing about. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty smart, actually. Th- thanks um, very very much. I really appreciate those comments because that's what I'm trying to do and it you know it can be difficult um because you try to put yourself into into a character's mind and and once i had an evening with a with a very successful nonfiction writer and he'd written a number of biographies and stuff and he said he tried a novel once but what he couldn't do was put himself into a character's mind and it, yeah. it becomes you know difficult because just not we're just not thinking spies and killers um, in one of my books, I had a scene with a woman who had been a French woman, and now she was in Montreal, and she was she had aided the Israelis in their attack on the Iraqi nuclear reactor, and now she was a, a prostitute, and, and she was on drugs, and down and out in Montreal, being hunted by a French policeman. And, you know, and I had to put myself into her mind of how she would act and what she was due. That one was difficult, but, you know... You sort of try to do it, but you're right. The reader has to feel, ultimately, hey, they are in the characters' heads of the main characters, and to me, they have to. The reader has to relate to your characters, and I really appreciate your comments, Greg, because you hit it on the nail. I mean, hit it on the head is exactly what I'm trying to do, and and in your case, I'm glad I've been successful. I'm. Now I'm really glad we had this interview. Well, <laughs> well I, I appreciate that. But, uh, you know, I got, a, um, I, I got hooked on uh, suspense and thrillers um, years ago. I think my first book was Nelson's, Nelson DeMille's The Charm School. And I talked to Nelson a couple of weeks ago. I was I've been trying to get him for about a year, but I finally got him last uh, uh, about a week or so ago, and we had a great talk. Um, all you guys, uh, all you guys are are very bright, uh, articulate individuals. Um, I, I think that's what draws me to authors like you. Um, you know, you're smart. Um, 
and you know you have fun and uh yeah, to, and to me that's thing, yeah and, and you know one thing that's nice for us now when you said the charm school which which made me think is you know the way the book business has developed for authors like me and DeMille and these people about don't you have written a lot of books is that is that now with with the Nook and Kindle and all the electronic books, and of course we all have our earlier books up on all ebooks. It's just great so that people can go and and discover and get to our earlier books, which is wonderful because before that, books are you know they stay in bookstores so long, then they're gone. You can't find them; they're hard to order. Mm-hmm. But um, you know when you say like an earlier book, the Charm School, if somebody wants to get that. Or they want to get one of my earlier books. If they have e-books availability, then you know it's easy to do, and it's it's opened up a whole new horizon for us as writers and and for readers. Which isn't to say I don't love bookstores. I do, but it's nice that people have you know a second outlet. I think really. Yeah, and it's where the world's going too. You know, I mean, crying out loud, sure. our, our freaking yes. cell phones have everything right. on it nowadays. I know. <laughs> which, which is uh, scary. When the grid goes yep. down, what are we gonna do? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Oh man. Well, listen, um, this has been fun. Uh, I'd I'd like to get you back at some point and uh, go a little bit further. Um, with you as a, as a writer, as an intellect, um, um, living in the world you live, um, it's been fun. I, I, I really appreciate it, Alan. For, for me too. And I hope I can come back and we can, uh, at some point pick up the conversation. I'd, yeah. I'd love that very much either when the next book comes out or whenever's convenient. Cause I've enjoyed this a lot too. Great Thank talk. you very much. Thank you. Um, one more question and then I'm going to say goodbye, but, um, um, What's your favorite wine, Alan? I love I love uh, Spanish wine and French wine. Uh, oh, okay. Wine. You've been um, all over the world. Give it to me. Okay. What okay. should I try? I li- okay. <laughs> I, I I love red. I love red Burgundies, um, and from of course from France, and I love Brunellos from uh, Tuscany and Italy. Those are my two favorites. Far out. Okay. Okay, baby. <laughs> Good. Well, it. I'm Italian, Polish. I cook. I drink. So uh, it's always interesting uh, to talk to folks like you because uh, uh, there's some commonality there. Um, oh yeah, and I mean, I mean, I can tell you, Italian wines are great from 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 the north, from Tuscany. Oh yeah, and they're oh, yeah. and they're the best bargain I think in the in the market today. They really, really are from a price point in terms of quality and price. At every level, uh, for me, Italians are the way to go. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> on that note, we're going to uh, the Marshall Public Library. This is Greg Grasso thanking acclaimed international novelist Alan Topol for spending time with us today. Um, you can find uh, Alan's books anywhere. Just Google it. You'll get it. And I encourage everyone to read The Spanish Revenge, uh, the second in a trilogy uh, with the character Craig Page. Alan, thank you very much. It's been a, uh, it's been a gas. Um, all my best to you, sir. Great. All right. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye.